Greetings and welcome to the Firm Meditation Podcast. I'm Camilo Gonzalez and today we're talking about climate change. We're joined uh, this morning by Dr. James Fletcher. Um, I'm sure he wouldn't mind if I call him Jimmy. Um, Absolutely not. <laughs> Jim, Dr. Fletcher is St. Lucia's uh, former Minister of Sustainable Development and many other titles as well, but for the purposes of this conversation, um, former Minister of Sustainable Development. And he was the lead minister, um, not just for St. Lucia, but for the entire Car Caribbean community uh, on climate change negotiations uh, through a number of... Of, of conferences, um, culminating, of course, with his indispensable role in uh, crafting the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, he also played a very important role in the Alliance of Small Island States um, and is, is probably the, the region's leading expert on, on issues related to ambition and loss and damage. And really, you'd be hard for us to find somebody with, with a more intimate knowledge of the Paris Agreement, um, how we got there, the, the various sacrifices we made to get there, and what it means for the region. So, so happy to have you here, Jimmy. Morning. Um, thanks, Camilo. Good morning. And if ever I, I launch a political campaign, I want you to do the introduction for me. Well, you know, that will be the subject of a separate <laughs> blog. Um, and, and, and we can talk about that later. I'm sure we will. <laughs> I hear you. But, but for those, you know, before we dive into it, I think most people know what the Paris Accord is. But if you could just tell us briefly, just sketch out what, what exactly is this thing, the Paris Climate Agreement, the Paris Accord, and, and what does it try to accomplish? Well, the Paris Agreement is the culmination of years of negotiation among the 195 parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change on a mechanism for basically reversing the impacts of, of global warming and providing support to those climate-vulnerable countries, foremost among which are small and developing states like ours, to be able to deal with the immediate and the likely impacts of climate change. So really, it is a recognition by the, the countries of the world that climate change is real. It is man-made. The science is, is indisputable. And what we should be doing as a global community to, one, mitigate the impacts of climate change, so making a transition away from fossil fuels to renewable sources of energy and making that transition quickly enough to be able to bend that temperature curve away from where it seems to be heading um, inexorably right now to somewhere in the vicinity of 4 degrees Celsius warming by the end of the century to 2 degrees Celsius and from, for us as small island developing states, 1.5 degrees Celsius, which we have identified as our safe limit and the type of support that needs to be provided financially, technically and otherwise to, um, to make this happen. 
And I think equally importantly, something that has not been highlighted because it's probably the, 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 the least sexy part of the agreement, but really the framework is for ensuring compliance. So a reporting mechanism, um, means of verification that what the countries have said that they will do, that they are doing, and a reporting mechanism, really. So, so those really are the elements of, of the Paris Agreement. Um, it, it was basically a historic agreement to get the countries to, to agree to this, and then even more importantly, to sign it and ratify it within such a short space of time was something that was unprecedented. And um, I think it's something that we, certainly as a Caribbean group of nations, are very proud of the role that we played in making this happen. Now, you, you, you mentioned uh, some degrees there. You talked about 1.5 degrees, which you see as a safe limit for the Caribbean. You talked about 2 degrees and, and, and other numbers. I mean, to the layman, the difference between 1.5 and 2 and 2 and 4 doesn't sound like a great deal. Um, one day the temperature is 26 degrees, one day is 24 degrees. It's no big deal. Um, right. what, what, what does it mean? Um, you know, taking us from 1.5 to 2 and, and 2 to 3 or 4. What, what, what does the science say it would mean for the region? Well, the the science really, the, the warmer the, the, the temperature gets, the warmer the global temperature gets, is the more certain things will happen. So, for example, the more you will have melting of your polar ice caps. And when your polar ice caps melt, and they're already melting at, a, at an alarming rate, it means your sea levels start to rise. So the difference between 1.5 degrees Celsius and 2 degrees Celsius would probably be the inundation of large areas, the flooding of large areas of low-lying states like ours um, that would cause large displacements of, of people, um, loss of livelihoods. Um, as you know, for us in the Caribbean, our entire infrastructure is along our coast. So our coastline really is our juggler. And if you, if you now have large areas of our coastlines being flooded, it means that you are not only displacing the people who live along those coastlines, but you, you're affecting agricultural activity. You have, you're affecting um, schools. You're affecting, in fact, I'm, I'm fond of saying that climate change is, is an equal opportunity destroyer. It, it affects the living and the dead, because I don't know whether that's <laughs> the case in, in St. Vincent, but in St. Lucia, most of our cemeteries are also along the coastline because it's, the soil there was a lot easier to dig because it's sandy. So even those who believe that, okay, 2050, 2075, I'll be long dead. Well, your bones might be floating out at sea because um, <laughs> seawater will probably come and, and take them and wash them away. But it's also other things. It, it's um, the more carbon dioxide that is produced by um, the burning of fossil fuels is the more carbon dioxide our oceans have to absorb. Now, when our oceans absorb carbon dioxide, a very interesting thing happens. The chemistry of carbon dioxide mixing with water in our oceans causes carbonic acid to be formed. And that carbonic acid now makes our oceans more acidic. So it means our shellfish, things like our our lobsters, our crayfish, um, and all those other things that form calciferous shells and, and need that for their survival, those shells cannot form, so you're affecting our fishery. You also, as, as the temperatures get warmer, your sea surface temperatures get warmer, so you have coral bleaching. So the corals that are really a very important part of our marine ecosystem and that give rise to, again, that abundant fishery that many of our fishers depend on, that um, gives us that beautiful 
seascape that people come down to the Caribbean and dive to, to, to witness, that now becomes just a mass of dead white coral, as you're seeing in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Yes. So economically, from fisheries and economically from tourism and diving, that becomes non-viable. Non, non um, our agriculture sector is affected because you now have saltwater intrusion in land, so your soils are becoming more saline and, and not conducive to, the, to growing the sort of crops that, that we are used to, to, to growing and we depend on. And the health sector. In fact, there was a report by, um, that was produced by University College London and The Lancet, which is one of the foremost um, peer-reviewed medical journals. It identified climate change as the biggest public health threat facing the world in the 21st century. And I think we're already starting to see impacts of that with the diseases like chikungunya and Zika that we normally do not see in our yes. part of the world. Yes. You're now starting to see these things almost on a regular basis. So the impacts of climate change are widespread. So two degrees and four degrees may not sound like such a big, such a big deal. And maybe, yes, you'll say, okay, what's the difference between a 31 degree Celsius day in the Caribbean and a 33 degree Celsius day in the Caribbean? Yes. It may not be much for us. Yeah, it might be a little bit hotter, but the impact on our ecosystems, the impact on our climate systems will be tremendous. And that's why we've, we've, we've the backing of some very vigorous science have identified that anything more than a 1.5 degree Celsius warming um, will be catastrophic. And again, we must remember that 1.5 degrees is an average. So while it may, might be a global average of 1.5 degrees Celsius, it, there's a very real possibility that in parts like ours, that warming could be closer to 4 degrees or sure. 4.5 degrees. Sure. So I think those are all the things that we have to take into account. Well, you, you talked about, you know, journal articles saying that climate change is... is this great threat, and and certainly that motivated a lot of the action and, and speed uh, of the adoption of the Paris Climate Agreement. I, I know I was privileged to sign it on behalf of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, um, but things have changed politically. Um, yes. We have a new president in the United States of America, the United States being uh, one of the larger emitters currently and the largest emitter historically. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, but the President Trump does not view, uh, quite clearly, does not view climate change uh, in the same way that, that you do. And he has announced um, that the United States is withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement. And he seemed to have... Uh, you know, three three issues really. Uh, you know, all within his America First framework. He talks about the draconian financial and economic burdens um, that the agreement is going to place on the United States of America. Uh, he talks about the fact that China and India, uh, who are large emitters, um, are allowed, in his in his view, to continue to emit while America is, is restricted. And he has a particular issue with the Green Climate Fund. Thus, as of today, the United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. This includes ending the implementation of the nationally determined contribution and, very importantly, the Green Climate Fund, which is costing 
the United States a vast fortune. For example, under the agreement, China will be able to increase these emissions by a staggering number of years, 13. They can do whatever they want for 13 years, not us. India makes its participation contingent on receiving billions and billions and billions of dollars in foreign aid from developed countries. There are many other examples, but the bottom line is that the Paris Accord is very unfair at the highest level to the United States. Is the president right? Well, he's not. Um, first of all, the Green Climate Fund, which is the fund that was set up to basically provide support to climate vulnerable countries like low-lying states and small island developing states, the, there's a commitment by the global community to capitalize that fund to the tune of $100 billion by the year 2020 and $100 billion every year thereafter. Those are voluntary contributions. So it isn't something that any country is mandated to. Now, President Obama, who demonstrated excellent leadership and, and without whom and the work of his envoy, people like, like Todd Stern and also his Secretary of State, John Kerry, I don't think we would have had an agreement or we would not have had an ambitious agreement. President Obama pledged $3 billion to the Green Climate Fund, and he was able to deliver $1 billion of that pledge before he left office. Now, it is up to President Trump to determine whether he wants to honor that obligation, um, adjust it. Well, we know he won't increase it. But there really isn't any fixed formula that says that the, the United States of America has to contribute X percent of its gross national income to the Green Climate Fund. There is just a global commitment of $100 billion that we hope to raise. And, and as, as I explained, actually, to one of the diplomats from the U.S. State Department in a, in a lunch I had with her not too long ago, this thing makes sense for the United States of America, because the United States does not understand, or, or President Trump's administration does not understand, that the more it invests in building resilience in countries like ours, the more it it helps in making, allowing us to make a transition away from fossil fuels is the one, the less of a burden it places on them. Because unfortunately, Camilo, when we have natural disasters in our region, our focus almost immediately turns to our nearest wealthy neighbor, which is the United States of sure, America, sure. for support. And the more you could reduce that burden by making us resilient and by, by reducing the severity and frequency of those natural disasters, then the less of a burden there is on the United States of America. There is also something called a climate refugee who will be a regular feature of our landscape in years to come, because people will lose their livelihoods, people's homes will be displaced, people's habitats will be destroyed. And these people, have limited opportunity within their own country, particularly a small island like ours, in the case of St. Lucia, 238 square miles, when you've lost most of your coastline, where do you go? You don't go inland. St. Vincent, like St. Lucia, is, an, is a mountainous country. There are limited opportunities for expanding inward, so people now start to migrate. But also, and this is something that Joe Biden, to his credit, recognized with the two U.S.-Caribbean summits that he organized. I mean, we, those of us who attended, and you attended one of them, yes. know where his focus was. When he saw that the Caribbean was moving away from fossil fuels to renewable energy, he saw two things immediately. One, he saw an opportunity to lessen the influence of Venezuela in the region, and Absolutely. he saw it from a political um, vantage point. But he also saw an opportunity for U.S. companies that are involved in renewable energy, in solar and in wind, to get into the Caribbean 
and basically sell their services to the Caribbean because he was concerned that our focus was on Europe and many of us were looking to European companies for assistance and technical support. Absolutely. So there are opportunities there. And, and you know, it's, it's very short-sighted on the part of President Trump to view this almost as a way of causing a resurgence of jobs that no longer exist. He speaks about coal mining jobs, for example, and, and all of the all of the data suggests that there are fewer than 75,000. In fact, the most recent figure I saw was 50,000 jobs in the coal industry, and it is a shrinking sector. And yes. that's in the United States of America. There are over 650,000 jobs in the renewable energy sector in the United States, and that, that is growing. So it would make more sense to focus attention on a growing sector than on a dying sector. Now, what President Trump says about China and India is partially correct, and I'll give him credit for that, because China and India are significant emitters of greenhouse gases. But that's where the issue of common but differentiated responsibility, CBDR, comes in. What, we, what we've said and what we've agreed to is that these countries are not yet, India, for example, and it's a, it's a back and forth I remember having with the Indian environment minister on a number of occasions. They are saying that they have large sections of their country that are living in abject poverty, and they need to be given some space to develop those sectors. So while they are committed, and India is making significant strides in renewable energy, but they're saying you can't hold us to the same yardstick that you hold countries like Russia, like the United States, that are the cause of the problem that we have right now. Yes, we are working to, to address our problem, but there is still a development trajectory that we own that you can't cause us to just stop immediately and, and put us in an even bigger problem than, than we're in right now. So you need to give us a little bit of space. We are committed to reducing and eliminating, um, hopefully, eventually, our, our reliance on fossil fuels. But you can't use the same um, rate reduction step or rate reduction equation that you use for the United States that you're using for us. And, and that's where this whole question of common but differentiated re responsibility comes in. If you ask me, in an ideal world, would I like to see India and China reduce their emissions of greenhouse gases more quickly? I say absolutely. I'd like to see everyone do it, because the emission reduction targets that we have right now in the NDCs that President Trump speaks of, and by the way, the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions, are precisely what they say they are, contributions. They're not commitments. No country is being held legally liable, which is one of the things that, that many of us were a little skeptical about the NDCs. We said, but look, this is not legally binding. So when a country says it will reduce its emissions by 35 percent by the year 2030, if it doesn't do that, what then? And there really is no what then, um, because you know, you're not even allowed to name and shame. It is a kind of gentleman's agreement that we all say, yes, we will do this. We all agree that there'll be no backsliding so that we will increase ambition over time. And I believe that's one of the reasons that so many countries felt it safe enough for them to join the Paris Agreement, because they knew there were no legal sanctions if they backed off on the agreement. So to speak of the NDCs as being something that is basically putting an economic noose around the neck of the United States of America, it's anything but, because the growth in the energy sector in the United States is in the renewable sector. And if, if President Trump understood that sector a little bit better, he would understand that that is where he needs to be focusing his attention, and not on a coal industry that really does not does not have any future from an employment generation perspective for the United States. It was ironic when he talked at the time that he doesn't deal with, he's not, he doesn't represent the people of Paris, he represents the people of Pittsburgh. But, but, <laughs> yes. but his, his memory of Pittsburgh was the old coal mining and steel mining exactly. town. But Pittsburgh has already moved well beyond that and has an embrace, and has embraced green Pittsburgh. energy. 
Yes, and Pittsburgh didn't vote for him either. Pittsburgh voted for <laughs> Hillary Clinton. <laughs> in fact, I think the most recent thing I saw is that Pittsburgh and Paris have now agreed to work together in having their own mini climate accord. Yes. So, the, so his his model his model state uh, his model city is is not really um, a model at all. You're right. But we'll 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 get back to the, the the issue of what cities and 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 states can do in in the after this Trump decision. But you know. One of my big issues at the time was also the lack of a legally binding or a name and shame mechanism in the agreement. And we also have to recognize the fact that the United States has been emitting, has been contributing to this issue um, since almost the Industrial Revolution. And that countries like India and China, though they're emitting a tremendous amount at the moment, um, were still pulling plows by by oxen and and walking on foot when when the Americans had trains and and factories um spewing smoke into the atmosphere for 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 decades Correct. and it's it's not of course i I'm like you, I would want everybody to cut their emissions to zero tomorrow um but when someone who lives in a house with air conditions in every room and four SUVs in the garage wants to dictate to someone on a bicycle um, who doesn't even have a television or even electricity, uh, how much they should be emitting before they deal with their own emissions. It, it, it sparks of, of a bit of hypocrisy, uh, in my view. Now, you, you, I think, Jimmy, you were a little bit, you were a little bit kind to, to President Trump when you were talking about the Green Climate Fund, uh, about whether or not he would you said he wouldn't increase, but to see what his yeah, commitment was and yeah, so on. We, we, yeah, we know he won't. We know that he will actually. In fact, I remember in, in Marrakesh last year, I was asked to do a presentation to the Caribbean heads of delegation. It was in the immediate aftermath of the of the Trump victory. In fact, the Trump victory cast such a, a dark cloud over that that uh, Marrakesh cop that you know it, you could actually you could actually feel the tension and feel the sadness in the air. We had a meeting, St. Lucia delegation that is, with the U.S. delegation, and I mean one of the delegates was actually driven to tears when he was recounting how much work they had put into this, and he was basically <laughs> seeing this unraveling. I'm serious, unraveling just in you know in front of his very eyes. Yes. And I said to the to the heads of delegation that for me there were three possibilities of a Trump. Um, the three um, potential implications of a Trump victory where climate change was concerned. One, that he would pull out of the Paris Agreement, and that if he decided to pull out of the Paris Agreement, that, ha that would be a long process, because Article 28 said that he would have to wait three years until three years after the, the um, agreement had entered into force for his country before he could actually deposit his notification of withdrawal. And even after that, there was another one-year cool-off period before the withdrawal could take place. So basically, this would not happen before 2020, which is when the next U.S. Um, presidential elections would take place. But that, that doesn't mean that in that period, he could not scale down significantly what his participation in um, the UNFCCC and the, the, the Paris um, Agreement meetings would be. That was one potential scenario. The other scenario would be a, a nuclear option for him to pull out of the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and he would do that. That could be that could take in, in, in effect in one year, and that would effectively remove him from everything, Paris Agreement and everything else. Or the third option would be to eliminate funding to the climate um, various climate bodies. And the three bodies that the United States, where its contribution is very significant, is one, the Secretariat of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Secondly, the work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
which is really the group of scientists that, that reviews all of the science and, and makes determinations that guide how the Paris Agreement and the um, Kyoto Protocol and, 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 and others respond to the threat of climate change, um, and also the Green Climate Fund. And for me, that, that was an option that I always felt Trump would pursue, because with all of Trump's put America first and make America great again, it was clear that his focus would be inward, and whatever funds would be at his disposal, he would not send it into um, things like the Green Climate Fund. So I think it's clear to us that, one, Trump will not honor the remaining $2 billion of, of the obligation to the GCF. And equally um, concerning for me is that he would reduce, if not totally eliminate, the United States financial contribution to the framework, the secretariat of the UNFCCC and the, IP, the IPPC. And I think those are things that, that will cause significant um, adjustments where our climate work is concerned. Well, I don't know if you've seen it, Jimmy, but um, the, you know, the United States is in the middle of their budgetary process. Right. Um, and the, the White House has released a 62-page document detailing the president's uh, budgetary proposals. And, of course, they're just proposals at this point. But right. um, on that matter, I'll, I'll read it to you. It says, the president's 2018 budget eliminates the Global Climate Change Initiative and fulfills the president's pledge to cease payments to the United Nations climate change programs by eliminating U.S. funding related to the Green Climate Fund and its two precursor climate investment funds. Wow. So, so that, is, that is the proposal on the table. I mean, of course, Congress, mm -hmm. Congress will weigh in, but um, that's, that's the president's proposal on, on, on the Green Climate Fund and, and US, U.N. climate change programs at the moment. Right, right, yeah. Well, not unexpected, unfortunate, but not unexpected. No, we 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 drifted Jimmy a little bit um, mm -hmm. into into inside baseball, <laughs> talking about um, <laughs> you know all these acronyms and and all of these funds and everything. Bring it back to earth for us. You you told us that climate change in the Caribbean will 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 affect the living and the dead, and. And we know that in St. Vincent, actually, and the last trough system, um, cemeteries in, in the northern uh, half of the island of St. Vincent were, were flooded and washed away, and we had to rebury bodies um, and lost some, um, both to rivers and to the sea, um, because, of, because of unprecedented flooding. So, so we know a little bit about it affecting the dead. Um, but Trump is out. The, the money pledged by Obama, seems to be gone. Trump made a, a valid criticism, in, in my view, in his presentation, withdrawing, that some other countries that have pledged money to the Green Climate Fund have not put the money in. Um, what does all of this mean? What does Trump's pulling out of Paris mean for the world and for the Caribbean? Is it possible... Is it possible to arrest climate change, to keep us below 2 or 1.5 degrees with the United States not party to the Paris Agreement? And if it's not possible, what does the future look like? You, you, you touched on a little bit of it before, but what does it look like for the Caribbean? It's possible, and I think that, that gets 
fits into that part of the discussion that you said we'd go into later, which is what the businesses and the cities um, in the United States will do, despite what Trump has, has said that he will do. Um, there's already a momentum in the United States, as you know, from the statistic I just gave on the number of jobs in renewable energy compared to the number of jobs in, in, in coal. Um, the things that people like Elon Musk with Tesla um, people like that are doing that are really causing the whole economy of the United States to shift very significantly towards one that is based more on renewable sources of energy. And I don't know that there is anything Trump can do, except if he decides to put draconian tariffs on anybody who decides to, to, um, to invest in renewable energy. I don't know that there's anything that he can do that will, that will stop that movement. Um, so I'm very encouraged by what I'm seeing happen happening at the state level and at the private sector level in the United States. However, I guess the, the, the argument he uses for other countries pulling their weight is the same argument he uses for NATO, that he believes that the United States is carrying an unfair um, share of the burden, etc. And with the United States pulling out its funding, other countries will have to step up and other countries will have to will have to translate pledges into actual money. Because what we have with the Green Climate Fund is a pledge that by the year 2020 we will get we will have one hundred billion dollars um, available for disbursement to climate vulnerable countries. And are we anywhere are we anywhere close to that? No, the, the last time I checked, the capitalization of the Green Climate Fund was 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 not past eleven billion dollars. So we are very we what ten percent of of what that pledge is, three years three years away. Now at the same time, I must tell you that the the people who administer the Green Climate Fund will say to us, yes, we have eleven billion dollars, and you say that we need one hundred billion dollars, but that eleven billion dollars we have, you guys are not spending it. So it's not like it's oversubscribed, and we need to go out looking for more money. Um, and there is a a certain bit of truth to that argument, and it speaks to an internal issue of capacity for all of us, where the Green Climate Fund has some very onerous requirements for, for project development. So, for example, if you wanted to show that, um, let's take a, a, a place in St. Lucia, Canaries, or, 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 or Windward in St. Vincent, that there is an impact of climate change on the water sector there, and there you need to develop a big water project because one of the areas that is very heavily impacted by climate change is water availability. You would have to show historical data that, that would indicate that as a result of what has been happening with climate change, water availability in Windward in St. Vincent or in Canaries in St. Lucia has reduced to an extent where you need to make an intervention to correct for that. It's, it would not be enough for you to say the people of Windward need water, so therefore we need a project of $100 million to provide water for the people of Windward. They'd say no, but that's a, that's a government project. That has nothing to do with climate change. You have to be able to tie that to climate change. And one of the areas in which we are woefully inadequate in our region is the collection and use of empirical data. We're yes. not... We're not an evidence-based society. We're not an evidence. We don't use an evidence-based governance model. We use something that's more anecdotal, that's more opinion-based, and that is one of our weaknesses. But I think the governments also have to invest resources into 
developing units that for me, Camilo will do nothing else but develop those projects that are required to access those funds. Because I've always said, okay, let's say you, you want to churn out maybe three or four projects to get funded by the Green Climate Fund on a yearly basis. That will require significant investment in resources. You can't leave that to the people in your planning ministry or your Ministry of Finance or your Agricultural Ministry who have other things to do. You will have to develop a dedicated unit of three or four technical officers whose job will be to collect that information, prepare the projects, and submit them. Now, for me, employing four people, paying them, let's say, roughly, you pay them $10,000 a month, anywhere between eight dollars and $10,000 a month to do this, and you, you, you employ them for three years, what you will spend on the employment of these figures pays in comparison with the amount of money you can collect from projects that can be developed, well-developed projects that can be sent to the Green Climate Fund for funding. So our, our governments have to look at this thing differently and understand that in order to be able to, to access these funds that are there, not the $100 billion that we're looking for, but the $11 billion that's available, then we have to invest some resources to make this happen. And maybe we don't do it on a, on a local level, but maybe we do it on a sub-regional level. So maybe we develop a unit within the OECS that is charged of the responsibility of working with the technocrats in the various countries to develop these projects and submit them both on a, on a national level and on a regional level, or we do something at the CARICOM level. I'm much more, much more keen on doing it on a sub-regional level because I think the interests and the, and the challenges within the OECS are much more similar and lend themselves to the development of a regional project much more easily than doing it at the CARICOM level. And we all know it's, it's much more difficult to arrive at consensus at CARICOM than it is to arrive at that OECS. So there is, there is a need for us to invest some resources. Um, but the other countries, as I said, have to step up to the plate and have to say the European Union countries have to come up, um, and even China and others have to say, look, we are going to make contributions to this Australia, New Zealand, that will help take up the slack that um, that the U.S., that Trump is not providing. And hopefully other people will follow Mayor Bloomberg's lead and say, look, even if Trump is not making good on a $2 billion pledge, but I'm contributing $15 million. Let, let um, somebody like Bill Gates, who contributes to the Global Fund for AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, recognize this as something that is worthy of an investment by him and people like, like Richard Branson and the other philanthropists of the world need to now step up to the plate and say, despite what is happening in the U.S., we are, we are invested in this and we are willing to put our money where our mouth is. Well, and now, what, can, what would happen, to just answer the second part of your question, if that does not happen? I mean, I have some, some data that, that really puts in stock, in, 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 in very starkly, what can happen in the region. They, they say that with a 2 degree Celsius warming, we can get anything between a one meter at the very lowest sea level rise in the Caribbean region or two meter sea level rise in the Caribbean region. Some work was done on what would be the impact of a one-meter sea level rise in the Caribbean. And with a one-meter sea level rise in the Caribbean region, approximately 1,300 square kilometers of land area will be lost. So that's equivalent to the combined land masses of Barbados, Antigua Barbuda, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and Anguilla. Now, I'm not saying these countries will disappear, but I'm saying the amount of land that will be lost around the Caribbean would be equivalent to the combined land masses of these countries. Yes. Over 110,000 people displaced, 149 tourism resorts damaged, loss or damage of five power plants, 1% of agricultural land loss, loss or damage of 21 CARICOM airports, and lands around 35 ports inundated. That's a one-meter sea level rise. That's at the lowest level. A two-meter sea level rise, over 3,000 square kilometers of land area loss. So that's equivalent to the landmass of Martinique plus Guadeloupe plus Grenada. Over 260,000 people displaced. So that's what? That's like the population of Barbados. 
over 233 tourism resorts damaged, loss or damage of nine power plants, over 3% of agricultural land loss, loss or damage of 31 CARICOM airports, land surrounding 35 ports inundated, and loss of 710 kilometers of roads. And these are conservative estimates. So that basically tells you how significant these impacts are. And we have not even started touching on the social impacts that would, that would uh, accompany many of these economic impacts. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's terrifying. I mean, I read some of those. Some of those articles were referred to in the IPCC report, in, um, and uh, particularly, I was particularly interested at the time about the issue of the, the twenty-one airports lost, because you know St. Vincent and the Grenadines <laughs> just yes. spent a bit of money on an airport, um, right. and, and I'm not sure it, it's sufficiently high up um, to, yep. to to keep it away. But I think that's the case of all of us. The but. But Jimmy, if this happens, because what you're doing, and, and Obama, Obama responded to, to Trump's um, withdrawal by essentially saying, too late. The, the private sector has already chosen a low-carbon future. Um, they're already invested in renewables. The, the scientists, the engineers are, are unleashing all of this innovation. Um, and so Trump you know, the, the, the genie is out the bottle and, and, and Trump can't mm -hmm. put it back. But one of the arguments, if I remember it, and, and you are far more intimately involved in, in the negotiations, but one of the arguments earlier was coming from countries like the United States, even under uh, the Obama administration, was that, look, a lot of this money has to come from the private sector. Don't, don't, don't try to talk about new and additional money uh, from the governments, um, the, the, the money to finance adaptation and, and, and all of these efforts should really be coming from the private sector, from public-private partnerships and so on. And we fought um, very much to say, no, that these are state responsibilities, at least to some great extent. If we're now saying that, don't worry about it, um, Apple and Google and Elon Musk and Bill Gates uh, will pick up the slack Hasn't Trump won? Hasn't he taken his government off the hook um, and essentially told us, go find the money somewhere else? And, and if he's done that, um, hasn't, he, hasn't he indeed struck a better deal for his country? He has. He's struck a better deal for his treasury, absolutely. But he's also, he's also introduced something which you touched on, which is extremely important for us. One of the things, one of the reasons we were pushing back against the the United States, as you correctly stated, under President Obama, um, I mean, it was something that Todd Stern was, was always clear, uh, a point he made repeatedly, um, that this had to be, a lot of this had to come from the private sector. And, and what we said was, hold on, when it's private sector money, private sector expects a return on its investment. So if, if this is going to be private funds, then we, ex we, we anticipate that these guys will say that we will lend this money to you at concessionary rates, but we will, we will not give you this money. If it's public funding, then it, it falls on the um, development assistance, and, and we, we don't expect to have to repay it. So how can you say to a country like St. Vincent the Grenadines or Antigua and Barbuda or St. Lucia or Dominica that is 
dealing with a problem that it has not created and that is causing significant hardship um, to its own finances. So, for example, when Hurricane Gilbert passed through Jamaica, I think it, it damaged 365 percent of its GDP. Same thing with Ivan in, in Grenada. 200 percent of the GDP was wiped out in the space of 24 hours. How do you say to a country that's always in a cycle of repair and recovery that it now has to borrow money to deal with a problem that it did not create? So you're right. Trump wins on two grounds. One, he, he removes the pressure on his taxpayers and, and on his treasury to have to come up for this money, but he also now forces us to borrow money to deal with a problem that he has created, and which is very, very unfair. So unless the likes of Google and, 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 and Gates and, and Elon Musk were to say to us that we are giving you this money, this is not money that we're putting in a fund that you can draw down at the rate of 1% or 2% concessionary, as it may be, but you still have to pay it back, um, then yes, he would have won. Absolutely correct. You see, I think that you know, there, there are two issues. There's mitigation, which is reducing the emissions uh, mm -hmm. that are coming out of the United States. Um, we're talking about the U.S. here. And then there's adaptation, the, the money that countries like us have to spend to deal with climate change. I, I don't doubt that, you know, a, a state like California, which is a huge state, um, can say, you know, they have, a, they have a progressive government generally in California. They can put, for example, restrictions on automobile emissions. And the weight of California will probably make the entire auto industry in, in the U.S. Uh, comply because uh, they yeah. wouldn't want to make two sets of cars. Mm -hmm. And, right. and, um, they, and, and governors, if you get, I mean, mayors, if you get critical mass of states, can do things. But that will stop mitigation. That, that might keep us closer to the, the U.S.'s um, emissions commitments. Right. But our countries, to, to protect those 21 to 33 airports, um, to stop uh, the population of Barbados being displaced, to stop the, the landmass of half of the, the Caribbean uh, being displaced, being disappearing, um, half of the Eastern Caribbean, we need money. We need money. And the United States was, was capped at about 30%, I believe, of that $100 billion. I, I, I don't remember the details right now. But it was contemplated that of that $100, million, um, $100 billion, sorry, that the U United States would be making a very significant contribution to that $100, $100 billion. Yeah. Is, is it even realistic? I mean, I, I hear you saying other countries will have to pick up the slack. But, but will that happen? No, I don't think, honestly, I don't think it will. Um, and again, looking at the slow pace at which we've been able to capitalize the Green Climate Fund, we are, like I said, we have $11 billion now. If we were really on a, on a, on a good path towards $100 billion by 2020, we should have been able to mobilize a lot more money than the $11 billion that we've mobilized thus far. So um, to expect other countries to now come in and, and make up this, this, this deficiency in that space of time is, I believe, a little unrealistic. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue pressing. Absolutely. We have to, in fact, we have to intensify the pressure on them and, and step up our advocacy. But it is a very tall mountain to climb. No. The, 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 the financing, which was a significant aspect of this for developing countries and countries most affected by, by climate change, the financing seems to be gutted as we stand here today because of the U.S.'s pullout, even if it's just pledges. Um, the, the, 
the math surrounding global emissions um, has been, you know, you can't figure the numbers anymore because the U.S. doesn't have a commitment to what it plans to uh, reduce by how much it plans as, as a nation to reduce emissions. So I don't know if it's possible to calculate anymore where we're going um, temperature-wise. Is Paris dead? Is that climate agreement dead now that the United States has pulled out of it? No, absolutely not. In fact, um, I think the Paris Agreement is, is very much alive. Trump has, it, there's been one silver lining to this dark lord called, called Donald Trump, and that is he has really focused global attention on the Paris Agreement, the implications of the U.S. action where the Paris Agreement is concerned. And I think he's strengthened the resolve of a lot of, a lot of countries and a lot of organizations in doing what needs to be done to make sure sure that Paris succeeds. Now, strengthening resolve, um, mobilizing attention, etc., does not always translate into making money available immediately. But I would say Paris is, is, is anything but dead. You have 195 countries that, that are party to the Paris Agreement, and the last I checked, over 150-something countries had already ratified um, the Paris Agreement. These countries are still there, still very committed. And I haven't heard any country say that as a result of the U.S. action, it is now reevaluating its commitment to Paris. In fact, I've heard, I've heard the exact, exact opposite. Everyone is saying, including Russia, by the way, which I thought would have probably used Trump's posture to, to say, well, you know, maybe we are rethinking our position on this, because Russia was, was never one of the enthusiastic supporters of some of the things that we were doing. <laughs> not at all. The, and, and again, I'm being, I'm being very diplomatic. Very diplomatic. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it's not just Russia. I mean, I remember when we were negotiating, as you know, I was leading the negotiations, um, the team set up by Fabius to look at ambition and the long-term temperature goal, et cetera. And I had to be very neutral, so I could not push. It was me and the minister from Norway, Tina Suntov. We were, we were basically facilitating those discussions. And the delegate, the head of the delegation from Saudi Arabia came up to me and said to me, you know, you guys are pushing this 1.5 degrees Celsius, but you will get 1.5 degrees Celsius over my dead body. I mean, that is the, that is the depth of the, of the resentment that people had about this 1.5 degree and this 2 degrees that we were pushing, because they are saying to us, this will cause significant um, dislocation of our own economy. So while we're not unsympathetic to what you're saying where your economy is concerned, you have to see this where our economies are concerned. And I think it is really remarkable that we were able to get everybody to come on board. And with the exception of Syria, that, that has its own domestic issues, and I don't think Syria was in a position to wrap its head around the Paris Agreement or anything. And Nicaragua, which is being portrayed as being anti-Paris Agreement, but Nicaragua's position where the Paris Agreement is concerned is that the Paris Agreement is too soft. Not ambitious enough, yes. Not ambitious enough. I yes. remember Paul Oquist, who is a minister, Paul was very upset that, one, the Paris Agreement was not dealing with the issue of liability and compensation. Absolutely. I spoke to Paul felt, about that. Right, exactly. Which he felt was, could not have been taken out of the Paris Agreement. So Nicaragua, Trump and the U.S. and Nicaragua are not in the same place. They, Far from. The only similarity between the two of them is that they, they both not, will no longer be parties to the Paris Agreement. But, but Nicaragua wants to see a stronger Paris Agreement, which runs completely um, diametrically opposed to what Trump wants. So no, Paris is, is not dead by any stretch of the imagination. I think the, the, and what came out of the recent bond meetings, I was told, is very steady progress towards developing the rules set for Paris. But we can't fool ourselves. Paris will work only for us 
if the countries ramp up their ambition where the reduction of greenhouse gases are concerned, um, emissions are concerned, because as it is with the NDC pledges, with the pledges we have in these nationally determined contributions, we are still at three degrees Celsius. We're not close to two degrees Celsius. So they have to, one, accelerate the time frame within which they will decarbonize their economies, and two, um, make even deeper cuts in greenhouse gas emissions. That's the first element that is very important for us. And the second element that is equally important is the finance. If we are not getting the money to be able to help us to adapt to the impacts of climate change, then the Paris Agreement really, for us, is a piece of paper that will not make an iota of difference in our resilience and our ability to 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 deal with the impacts of climate change. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and that leads that leads to the final question, really. Um, you said that you've been encouraged by, by the response of countries um, post-Trump's decision. But the truth of the matter is that those responses are fairly, fairly new. I mean, Trump's decision is fresh. And the, yeah. the knee-jerk reaction of the foreign ministers and, and environmental ministers and, and presidents that were all invested in this thing is to say, well, we're you know, full steam ahead. But what happens when... The finance minister whispers in their ear a year from now or two <laughs> years from now uh, and says, look, this thing is imposing a cost. Do we really have to close down this coal plant? No. I mean, look at Donald Trump. He's not doing anything. Um, yeah. So the, the question is to avoid the Paris Agreement uh, becoming just a piece of paper. And with the special role that CARICOM uh, led by you, but the special role that CARICOM played and the Alliance of Small Island States played in putting the impacts of climate change front and center on the agenda. Um, what should we be doing now uh, to keep Paris alive and, and by extension to keep ourselves alive um, in, the, in the coming years? I think we have to step up our advocacy. I'm, a, I'm, I'm disappointed that post-Paris, there seem to have been a complete um, cessation of the momentum that, yeah, that we, did we it. developed in we the Caribbean. We, we patted ourselves yeah, on the back and, and said we it. did it. Yeah. We won, we won the NBA championship and we went into off-season mode, um, if, you, if you want to, to use what's going on right now yes. um, with the, the, the playoffs that are going on in the U.S. And I think that's what we did. And, and unfortunately, when I saw our position and our our representation, not so much that we were not represented in Morocco because our heads of government were there, Prime Minister Gonzalez was there, um, Prime Minister Chastney from St. Lucia, many other prime ministers were there. But you didn't get that same sense of urgency. You didn't get the sense of, okay, you know, guys, this is just the first part of the battle. We now need to ensure that we keep our concerns front and center, that we continue, we continue the lobbying, we ensure that the rules set that will be developed for the Paris Agreement, the modalities of operation of the Paris Agreement are as favorable to us as the Paris Agreement itself is, that many of the gains that we, we got in the Paris Agreement are not rolled back with some of the ways in which the Paris Agreement is implemented. We have to continue this work. And I think there has been a lull in our own representation, both at the Caribbean level and at the wider AOSIS level. And I think that has to be stepped up. And, and, and this threat posed by the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement hopefully will give, give us the impetus to do that. We have to... but. We also have to do a much better job, Camilo, in documenting and, 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 and basically providing the scientific underpinning for the arguments that we make. Because it, these, these, um, 
expressions of, of boy, you need to sympathize with us. Things are difficult. We have to back that up with scientific, with hard scientific data. And we're Absolutely. not doing that. And, and I would like to see all of our agencies, our regional agencies, Caribbean Institute of Metrology and Hydrology, CARDI, dealing with the agriculture part of it, CAFA, dealing with the health impacts, um, and all of the, then the University of the West Indies and University of Ghana and, and all universities now understanding that the same way the people of the Caribbean are now waking up to the fact that climate change is the biggest threat, as we put it, the existential threat for the Caribbean, they have to treat it that way. Our regional institutions are not treating climate change that way, and they're going about their work like business as usual. And, and for me, that is what needs to happen. Climate change has to be front and center of all discussions. Any budget that is being proposed by any regional government as part of its annual budget budgetary process has to be a, a significant plank of that budget has to be climate change and how do we adapt to climate change and how do we mobilize the funding to help us deal with climate change because we can find that a lot of the money that we're investing now as you put it very correctly with the airport that the beautiful airport that you've you've just opened um in st vincent that all of that hard work and and the the, the tremendous effort of the government in getting that airport built can be undermined and, and basically destroyed in two or three years if you have sea level rise, if you have increased frequency of, of severe storms. All of that, 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 that comes to naught. So I think we as a region need to go back to the same vigor and, and, and fervor and, 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 and insanity that, that, that infected us in the build-up to Paris it now has to infect us again because the situation now, we've gotten the Paris Agreement, that's just a first step. But we now have to ensure that we can deal with climate change because climate change does not respect the Paris Agreement. Climate change is happening regardless whether there's a Paris Agreement or not. And, and I think that is what needs to happen. We need to step up the advocacy. Um, all of our diplomatic encounters with the United States, with, with our European Union partners, with Australia, with New Zealand, that's very heavily now active in the Caribbean, we have to make that climate change point over and over again that serious action is needed by the respective countries, but also um, in their own negotiating spaces to ensure that we are not relegated in four or five years' time to some um, unfortunate anecdote in history, the islands that were. Well, there you have it. Those are our marching orders. Um, everybody has to get back to work. Everybody must work. As you would expect from something that tried to balance the perspectives of almost 200 different countries, the Paris Agreement isn't perfect. At various stages, St. Vincent and the Grenadines argued for something more ambitious, with more legal consequences, and greater hurdles against pulling out. But within the early negotiating posturing, every state has a role, and ours wasn't to compromise. It was to keep other countries honest. Thanks to, really, unsung Caribbean heroes, like Dr. Fletcher from St. Lucia and Selwyn Hart of Barbados and Ruana Haynes of Trinidad and Tobago and many others. Island states got the best possible deal 
that we could get out of the Paris Agreement. Today, despite Dr. Fletcher's optimism, I think that we're almost back to square one. The fact is that one of the largest contributors to climate change has just cast aside any commitment to limit, limit its emissions. The fact is that the largest contributor to climate finance has just cut its pledges to zero. The implicit bargain of the climate agreement was always one of dollars for degrees. Those who wanted more emissions and thus higher degrees of climate change would pay more dollars to affected countries through the Green Climate Fund and other agencies committed to combating the effects of climate change. And now all of that is out the window. The United States was, simply put, one of the most important parties to the climate agreement. If we knew, if islands knew, if St. Vincent and the Grenadines knew, if the European Union knew, if, if the African Union knew that the U.S. was not going to be in it, we would have negotiated a different agreement. Many of the compromises that we made were designed to keep the United States within the consensus. Their withdrawal casts serious doubt over the ability of our islands to survive the oncoming climate onslaught. The truth is that our islands cannot survive the next four to eight years of American absence from the fight against global warming. Not that we'll disappear in four to eight years, but if America is not involved over the next four to eight years, the impacts, the effects, the accumulated uh, trouble that we'll face going forward uh, will probably be insurmountable. Yes, the struggle will continue. But asking private American companies and municipalities to pick up President Trump's slack runs counter to the intent and to the structure of the Paris Agreement. Because of that, Paris's central role in the battle against climate change must be re-evaluated and not just assumed. The battle to keep countries to meet um, their Paris pledges was already going to be a difficult one. Now we must also create, on the fly, a whole new system to fill the gaping hole left by the American abdication. It's not going to be easy. But the reality is we don't have a choice. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Until next time, be strong and hold a firm meditation. Thank you.